Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm talking to one of my favorite philosophers, Professor Shelley Kagan. Professor Shelley Kagan is the Clark Professor of Philosophy at Yale. He's the author of Limits of Morality, Normative Ethics, and the Geometry of Desert. Uh, I think uh, Professor Shelley Kagan is very well known to many people through his uh, YouTube uh, lectures at Yale on death. He's a cool-looking professor wearing uh, shoes, you know, just sitting on the desk. <laughs> Today he's here to talk with us about a book he published with Oxford University Press called How to Count Animals, More or Less, which was published in 2000 and 2019. Shelley, thank you very much for accepting this invitation. Thank you for having me. Uh, there have been a lot of books on animal ethics and that it's our moral duty to protect animals and the animals are as equally are equally important as human beings. You take a completely different field your or attitude towards this topic in your book, How to Count Animals. Before talking about that book, I would appreciate it if you could briefly tell us about your field of expertise and also tell us why you became interested in the uh, in, in the area of animal ethics. And you decided to write a book in this area. So I, I'm a moral philosopher. I teach at Yale University. Uh, I don't normally work on uh, topics that are uh, in, in the field. We call a topic like working like animal ethics as you do applied ethics. I, most of what my work is, is is highly abstract. You mentioned, for example, uh, the book, uh, The Geometry of Desert. And this raises certain questions about people be more deserving, less deserving, that they can't get exactly what they deserve. Is it better to give them too much, a little too little? It's all completely abstract, full of uh, uh, diagrams and, and the like. Um, so I don't normally work in uh, something as concrete as thinking about uh, animal ethics. The story of how I came to uh, write the book is, in some sense, fairly straightforward. I was invited to give a series of lectures uh, at Oxford, uh, at the Uhiro Center, uh, which is the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. And as the name suggests, uh, what they're looking for is not the kind of highly abstract work that I'm normally doing, but work on more concrete uh, moral questions. Um, I initially resisted uh, doing that, uh, but uh, one of my colleagues at Oxford, uh, not friend uh, pointed out that I had recently taught a seminar on animal ethics. Uh, so I occasionally teach more applied topics. Um, and he said, well, I can do something on that. So I worked up uh, over the next year or two, I worked up more systematically with my views, which I had only worked up in a very tentative overview uh, fashion uh, in the seminar itself. Um, one of the terms of uh, the contract to get the Uhiro lectures was that in conjunction with Oxford was I had to commit myself to uh, uh, turning the lectures into a book. Um, and uh, I did that in what for me was remarkable turnaround time. The same book I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, The Geometry of Dessert, I worked on for 20 years. Uh, uh, yes, that's right, 20 years. Uh, and in contrast, uh, from the time I started working on the lectures to the time the book came out, can't have been more than three or four years. So for, from that point of view, this was a, a rush job uh, for me. But it was quite a pleasure to uh, take on something new that I hadn't been thinking about for decades uh, and uh, you know, work up a, ses- uh, a set of views. As, as you also remarked, uh, I don't know whether you might be getting into this quite yet, but uh, the position that I ended up taking was... Uh, rather different from most of the views that are taken in the animal ethics literature, and for that matter, different from the views I had held uh, previously. That is, it was, a, it was a rethinking of my own view over the course of a couple of years. Uh, and I think that's a great point, a great, great point to start talking about um, the standard position of those who support animals. And we must say it's not when we are saying that maybe I'm not putting in the right word, it's not that we are against animal right? It's just a different philosophical take to it. So there has been this growing interest in animal ethics in the past 50 years. So maybe you can start talking about that, why it has become so popular, and also the position that you call um, you, uh, Unitarianism. 
which is the standard position of um, of, of of animal ethics. Can you talk about that and explain uh, the idea of moral status? Because you bring up bring in that idea of moral status there as well. Good, great. So so let me give a quick overview of the history mm -hmm. of the discussion of animals uh, within uh, Western moral philosophy. Uh, for most of uh, the time, there's been Western moral philosophy for thousands of years. During most of that time, there's been virtually no discussion about uh, what, if anything, we owe to animals. Um, there'll probably be some remark to the effect of one shouldn't go around gratuitously hurting animals, causing them pain for no good reason, and that might be about as far as the discussion went. Uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant, a great German uh, thinker, uh, thought that uh, in terms of the divine, uh, there are people on the one hand and there are things on the other. Uh, and just like there'd be no moral objection, uh, uh, I, I don't have a prop where I could grab a piece of paper and rip it in half. Um, uh, there'd be no moral objection to ripping a piece of paper. It doesn't count in its own right. We don't owe anything to the piece of paper. Uh, Kant thought that we don't owe anything to animals either. Uh, and he felt slightly queasy. He didn't want to think it was okay to rip up an animal for no good reason. And so he was forced to uh, uh, defend proper treatment of animals by saying something like, well, anybody who goes around being mean to animals is going to end up being mean to people. And since it's wrong to be mean to people, that's why you shouldn't be mean to animals. It wasn't a very compelling argument. Uh, what we feel intuitively is that animals count but most of us, when we reflect on it, animals count at least somewhat in their own right. Uh, even people who eat meat uh, think that to just gratuitously harm uh, a, a cow or a cat. I mean, here's kind of an example that gets thrown around in the literature. Imagine I, I bring out a cat, not a piece of paper, but a cat, and I douse it in gasoline uh, and then set it on fire. Virtually everybody would say that's wrong. So animals have to count. In their own, and it's not just wrong because that means I'm going to the next day start dousing people with gasoline. Oh, God, that's crazy. It's that I've somehow wronged the, the cat itself uh, by, by hurting it. Um, so, this is it's not that this view's never been uh, expressed. Another famous uh, moment in the history of Western philosophy with regard to animals is Jeremy Bentham. He's the father of what gets called utilitarianism. He was John Stuart Mill's teacher. Uh, Bentham said in defending the claim that animals count, the relevant question is not whether you're rational or whether you can speak. The relevant question is whether you can suffer, whether you can feel pain. And so Bentham and the utilitarians that came after him thought that animals counted, but didn't do a, a whole lot with this. Um, and so the topic wasn't much discussed. Um, the, the question, you know, the concept that you asked about a moment ago about, about status is just this idea of what sorts of things count and why. Um, and intuitively, we, we would probably all agree pieces of paper don't count. Uh, here's a pen. This pen doesn't count. Um, uh, I see uh, in the background uh, uh, next to you and you, you've got a plant in your room. Uh, most of us think plants don't count morally in and of themselves. We don't owe anything to plants. Of course, it would be wrong for me to tear that plant. Yeah, if we were in the same room, it would be wrong for me to tear that plant apart. But that's because it's your plant and I'd be wrong in you. The plant doesn't count in its own right. Uh, and we can we can capture this thought. You, know, you may or may not believe that, but we can capture this thought in the vocabulary uh, of moral status or moral standing. Which sorts of things do we owe some kinds of moral obligations to directly by virtue of the, the nature of, uh, of the entity? So what most of us think is that plants don't count, but in contrast, most of us think cats do count. And that's about as far as uh, the topic generally had, had gone. In the 60s, uh, there was a group of philosophers at Oxford who started thinking this is not taking sufficiently seriously. Our behavior towards animals doesn't take our obligations to animals sufficiently seriously. Uh, and Peter Singer uh, was part of this group. He didn't, didn't create the movement, but in some sense, he kickstarted it. 
um, or jump-started it. Uh, um, he published a book in 1975 called Animal Liberation. Uh, and what he said uh, uh, in the book was, if you take seriously the thought that it would be wrong to, uh, to set a cat on fire, um, this is not his example, but it would be wrong to set a cat on fire because after all, the cat can feel pain. Um, and so it counts. Then you have to uh, conclude, if you're open-minded and, and fair-minded about this, that it's, it's wrong to eat meat uh, the way the cows, for example, are uh, raised uh, in contemporary factory farming. Um, causes a tremendous amount of pain. Cows, chickens, uh, pigs, veal. Uh, they're, they're, they're basically tortured for their lives and then they're killed. Uh, and then Finger says, um, if you think about the, the moral significance of their suffering and weigh that against the moral, the weight, minimal moral weight of the pleasure you might get out of eating uh, cow flesh, um, it doesn't, it can't be justified. And the fact that we don't see it, and here becomes a, a, a crucial term of art, the fact that we don't see that is uh, the fact that is a reflection of the fact that we are speciesists. This term was deliberately meant to be uh, remind us of being a racist. A racist is somebody who, who treats different races differentially simply by virtue of what, what their race is. Or a sexist. A sexist is somebody who treats uh, men as counting being more valuable uh, than, than women. A speciesist is somebody who says, yeah, uh, people, humans, count more than cows count more than than, than, than chickens um, and so singer was saying no no this in the relevant sense all animals are, are equal um, and to put the point in a, a kind of uh, in terms of philosophical jargon moral standing animals have moral standing in terms of their status the thought was their status is the same as our status um, counting morally is something that's uh, binary on off you count or you don't don't count but if you do count and we take your counting seriously we have to count animal suffering as much as human suffering animal interests have the same weight as human interests and the like to uh, put it in terms of a slogan that singer offered and it's a really evocative slogan pain is pain um, so so this was uh this was the idea that that singer uh, popularized and and when i read it the book in the mid-70s, I think it came out in 75. When I read it in the mid-70s, I was convinced. I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. One needs to become a vegetarian. Um, uh, and animals count the same way that we do. Um, many decades later, when I am teaching this seminar, in the, uh, when did I teach the seminar? 2012, 2013, something like that. I started working through the issues again a after Singer wrote. A bunch of other people started working on the field. Um, some people said, yes, animals count, but we shouldn't think about them in utilitarian terms. Most people, when they think about our ethical obligations to, to other people, don't think about in terms of utilitarianism. That's, that's philosopher's jargon for the view that right and wrong is just a matter about bringing about the best results. And in contrast, most people are deontologists uh, and think that um, certain actions can be wrong, even if the results would be better. Killing an innocent person would be objectionable, even if this did more good in the long run. So views like that are called uh, deontological views. So some people started saying, yes, Singer, you're right. Uh, uh, animals can't. We need to think about this seriously. But we need to think about this in deontological terms. Um, Interestingly enough, even these people, though, ended up saying animals count in exactly the same way that people do. People should be thought of in deontological terms, so animals should be thought of in deontological terms. Uh, but but uh, status is, is still this binary. But I found myself thinking when I started revisiting these issues, uh, as I said, at this point, maybe 10 years ago, nine years ago, that it seems to me that although animals count, uh, they don't count in the same way that people do. That, to put it in just another slogan, people count more than animals. And not all animals count equally. Some animals count more uh, than other animals, morally speaking. 
And so we should give more weight to promoting the interests of people than we should to promoting the interests of cows. And more weight to promoting the interests of cows than we should to promoting the interests of uh, uh, snakes, let's say, uh, or, or, or houseflies, um, which uh, might still count somewhat. And so I began to develop, uh, in, in, in contrast to this view I've just been sketching, which says, details aside of, of how we need to treat people uh, and animals, there's only one kind of status. I, call, I dubbed that view Unitarianism for this view that was, is still probably prevalent and dominant in the philosophical literature of the last 50 years, but hadn't been given a name. Um, and I found myself thinking animals count, but the, the, the correct moral theory won't be a Unitarian. It won't be one that just treats it as though all moral statuses are the same, but rather will distinguish between different levels of, of moral uh, of moral status, such that some things, it's more important to count certain interests more than, for certain types of creatures more than others. So that's, that's where the whole project came from. Mm-hmm. And that's the hierarchical view that you endorse in your book in contrast to Unitarianism. So right. what is that hierarchical view? And um, so maybe you could put forth some arguments. Why do you think humans can't bore animals? And what I found really amazing in your book was that you, uh, it, it's not only black and white, you also talk about animals, that even in the realm of animals, there are some animals that, just as you mentioned now, that count more than others. So can you talk about uh, this aspect of your book? Sure. So, so you know, one question is, do we have reasons for thinking that a, a hierarchical approach is right? I mean, uh, that that some types of creatures count more than other types of creatures, uh, and uh, and then secondly, if you do think that, then what are the features by virtue of which some animals are going to count more than others, and by virtue of which people are going to count more than than uh, most animals? So, let me quickly sketch two arguments for thinking that the Unitarian view is at least one that led, uh, taken to its logical implications, uh, is, is probably going to strike most of us as troubling. Um, so, so one view uh, says this, uh, most of us, when we think about uh, our moral values, include um, egalitarian uh, uh, sentiments. We think that it's a very, very bad thing that there are people who lead lives that are so much worse than uh, the rest of us. And probably anybody listening to this podcast has a comfortable life. Um, uh, obviously, there'll be variation here, but we know that large parts of humanity uh, have lives that are not nearly as good uh, as, as my life or uh, your life. Um, and so we take it to be a really significant moral priority uh, that we should be devoting our attention to try to improve the lot of the worst. Um, and uh, that's that's an egalitarian sentiment. Mm-hmm. That most of us think that that's an important value to put include in our moral theory. But if you then start thinking about the level of well-being, uh, not that people have the you know, poor versus the rich or the, or the sick versus the healthy, but think about the quality of life of, um, of a chicken, let's say, or, uh, or a mouse. Um, it's very, very plausible to think that a mouse's life isn't nearly uh, uh, as good, isn't remotely as good as the life that you and I are having. Um, uh, this is why, uh, you know, some theory godmother came down and said, uh, you know, you can have the life of the, the best possible mom's life or your life, even with its imperfections, you'd say, yeah, I'm not stopping. Um, uh, human lives are much, much better than even the best possible mouse life. Mm. That being the case, if we then combine this with egalitarianism and then adopt the Unitarian view that says, oh, animals count and there's only one moral status. And so uh, uh, we have to prioritize improving the plight of the uh, uh, the worse off. Well, it's pretty clear that most animals are going to have significantly worse lives than most 
all humans. And that means that means that when you combine unitarianism with an egalitarian value in your moral theory, uh, instead of trying to prioritize helping badly off people, we have to prioritize making the lives of mice better, making the lives of chickens as good as they possibly could be, um, uh, doing everything we can to improve the, the, the lot of, uh, of fish. Um, and again, it's not that I don't think we should reduce animal suffering. Far from it. But it strikes me as implausible to think that, you know, if we were to discover that there are humans that were having lives as bad as the lives of mice or chickens, we would think this has to be our number one moral priority, uh, fixing that. Uh, but when we think about the fact that chickens have the kinds of lives that chickens have, I think we don't want to conclude. So improving their lives should be our number one moral priority. Mm. Instead, we say, huh, maybe the Unitarian went wrong in saying chickens count every bit as much as people do. Here's, here's another quick argument. Uh, I mm. mentioned that there are deontologists uh, who think, is most people are deontologically minded whether or not they were determined. And they think that certain actions would be wrong, even if the result would be really good. Um, suppose that by chopping up one innocent person, uh, I could get uh, organs and then you know, a heart, a liver, a kidney, and then use those organs to be transplanted into uh, uh, save five other people. Almost everybody, not the utilitarians, but almost everybody would say that's not morally justified. Even though the results might be better to have five alive than just one, um, it's uh, not morally okay to kill an innocent person in order to do more good. Um, all right, so suppose you've got that deontological thought, and then combine that with Unitarianism. If animals count, and they count the very same way that you and I count, then we have to say it's also wrong to kill, let's say, a fish even if that's the only way to save several people's lives. You know, suppose we're, we're hungry hmm. uh, uh, and we, you know, we're marooned and it's going to be a while for us uh, to have the ship come and save us. Um, not here talking about, you know, whether we should become vegetarians, you know, where, where there's no necessity for us to eat animal flesh. I'm asking you to imagine a case where eating a, a, a fish would save your life long enough for the ship to come. Mm. The Unitarian has to say, no, if you combine deontology with Unitarianism, that's not okay. And I mm. want to say, no, no, so much the worse for Unitarianism. If we've got to accommodate the very robust intuitions uh, that, of course, you shouldn't eat fish. You don't need to. But if that's the only way to stay alive, it's okay to eat a fish. I think we've got to give up uh, the, the Unitarians. So, so arguments like this. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm moving quickly beyond a lot of the details mm. and possible responses that the Unitarian could give. Uh, but arguments like this are what led me to believe, led me to conclude, no, I guess I really don't think mm. that there's only one moral status. I do think that, of course, it's wrong to kill animals, but uh, the, the right to life of an animal, as I put it, is a weaker right to life than the right to life of a person. Uh, and the egalitarian claims of animals, although I do think they have them, uh, we should try to reduce animal suffering. The egalitarian claims of animals are weaker than the egalitarian claims uh, of, of people. And so that's how I began to develop, and that's how I argue for, a more hierarchical view. Mm. So that's, that's, that's the first of the two questions you just posed, right? The, that the, why, be, why be a hierarchical theorist at all? And then the second question is, all right, then what is it that gives you a higher status uh, than, than other things? Um, and, and again, I, all I can do is just invite anybody listening to this podcast to think, okay, it does seem to me as though humans count more than animals. Um, it's a minority view among philosophers, but it's something much more like the common sense view, I think, among reflective people, uh, reflective individuals. Um what is it about being a person that makes us special? Not, not, not uniquely special in that we're the only thing with any kind of status at all, but counting more. Start asking yourself, go back to the question, the, the assertion I made 
a moment ago about that, that the life of a person is a better life to have than the life of a mouse. You know, ask, why is that? What is it that we have that mice don't have? Well, we, we mice can feel pleasure and we can feel pleasure, but there are types of pleasures that uh, humans have with a greater resonance and uh, depth uh, than than uh, anything that uh, I take it that a mouse can have. Um, I don't really know whether mice have any kind of aesthetic sense uh, or not, but I assume uh, that uh, they're not capable of uh, enjoying great visual beauty and anything like depth and emotional uh, depth of response uh, that we've got. Um, uh, 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 dogs know, thing about, know things about the world, uh, but the human capacity for knowledge uh, exceeds anything based on the available evidence that dogs are, are capable of. Uh, so, so we have greater uh, emotional depth. We have uh, greater uh, cognitive uh, depth and capacities. Um, we can uh, reflect on our situation and project ourselves into the future. Animals can project themselves into the future. Um, but we can project ourselves into the future in a much more complicated way. And so there's a variety of dimensions uh, that I think help explain what makes it true that uh, we can have better lives uh, than uh, most animals can. Uh, and these same sorts of considerations, I think, uh, point us in the direction of the sorts of things that we would want to take into account in thinking about um, what is it about us that makes us matter more than a chicken? Uh, well, there's the things that I just mentioned. There's other things as well. It's that um, we have a moral sense. Um, we have a certain degree of creativity. We have the ability to govern our own behavior as a result of reflection in a way that, again, I don't want it at all because that animals don't have these capacities in any degree, but it seems very plausible to hold that we have them to a much greater higher quality degree. And so it's these sorts of things that I think point to the explanation as to why we count more. And then within the animal kingdom, one begins to distinguish as well uh, about uh, which animals have these kinds of capacities, cognitive and emotional, to a greater degree than others. And so I think this is what generates the, the varying degrees of, of moral status. Uh, is so what about this argument that if if this argument is true, then can we also say that even among humans, there are humans who have a higher moral status or higher status than other human beings, just the same way that you make that case with that argument about animals? Right. Yeah. I mean, when one thinks about, all right, so I, you know, I laid out in a very quick uh, way some arguments in favor of the hierarchy view. Uh, it's very important that we recognize that the hierarchy view seems uh, open to, susceptible to various subjections. And indeed, in the in the Harakan Animals book, I devoted an entire chapter yeah. to being honest. I, you know, so I, I before you go on, I, I want... yeah, I guess that... when I was reading the book, I was reading your arguments. Okay, I understand, but I disagree. And I was writing notes. Then I came across that chapter. You had predicted all the counter arguments, and you started addressing them. <laughs> That's, that's, I mean, that's great. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear it. I mean, I, I wanted there to be a fair appraisal uh, of uh, the strengths and weaknesses of this position. And, 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 I'll, and I'll, I'll get to the particular objection that you mentioned in a moment. But I think one important thing to, to realize here, this is actually very frequently true in philosophy, but it's certainly true here, uh, is that no position is cost-free. Uh, anything we might say about uh, animal ethics is going to have spots where it strikes us that that's kind of hard to believe. That's that's a hard position to uh, uh, embrace uh, without some misgivings. And so it's always a question of, with an open mind, uh, trying to evaluate the rival positions and see which on balance does the best job. Uh, every view is going to have certain implications that are a little bit hard to swallow or, 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 or be comfortable with. I mean, think about the position that says animals don't count at all. If you really think animals don't count at all, 
then there was no objection, really, to sending the cat on fire in that fanciful example before. That's very hard to believe. As I say, even Kant felt uncomfortable saying that. And so he desperately you know, looked around, tried to find some psychological claim uh, that would allow him to say, well, you really shouldn't be killing cats. But the obvious thought is, no, it's not plausible to think animals don't count at all. All right. Well, so we say animals do count. But then what possibility is the Unitarian view? You say all animals count equally. But then you're stuck saying, all right, so if I'm, say, a deontologist and I believe that it's wrong to kill one innocent person, say five or ten or even a hundred uh, uh, other people, then you've got to say it's wrong to kill a fish to get to say one, five or ten or hundred you know, uh, people. That's very hard to believe as well. Now, again, in fairness, I have to say there are some moves that the Unitarian deontologists can make here uh, that would really be getting into weeds, probably not appropriate. Uh, uh, for this conversation. But when all is said and done, I think Unitarianism really is stuck with some very unintuitive implications. All right. Well, if we don't want to say animals don't count at all, and we don't want to say animals count the same way that uh, we do, then what's the alternative is to say animals count, but less than we do. Uh, and then you've got various ways of trying to work that out. Now, let me mention a hierarchical view that uh, I'm not myself sympathetic to, but um, is worth at least considering. Maybe all people have the very same moral status. They have kind of deontological rights not to be killed, even if the results would be better. And all animals count, but they shouldn't be counted in a deontological fashion. They should be treated more like the utilitarians say that everybody should be treated. Uh, maybe what we should do, we can, we can kill an animal if that would do more good, but we shouldn't kill a person even if that would do more good. And so uh, maybe it's deontology for uh, people, but utilitarianism for animals. That would be a hierarchical view. A view like this was discussed by Robert Nozick, a great philosopher uh, who died some years ago. Um, he didn't actually believe that view was adequate, but he thought it was worth considering. And I think that probably comes closer to the common sense view. Um, but to defend that view, you have to say, what is it that people have that animals don't have, such that we should have a claim to having deontological rights and animals don't have that claim because they haven't got the thing, that we you know whatever the thing is. And, and, and the obvious answer to that is uh, yeah, the, the proposal that gets made is that people have autonomy and animals don't. And then you've got to start explaining about what is autonomy. It's something about having a vision about how you want your life to go and being able to make choices, excuse me, in keeping with that vision uh, and the like. And I think, yes, you know, most people do have autonomy. Uh, and we certainly have it to a higher degree than animals do. But I don't think it's plausible to think that animals don't have any amount of autonomy. And so there's no real underlying philosophical justification for saying that people should have deontological rights and animals shouldn't have deontological rights of any sort at all. Rather, it seems to me the conclusion should be people should have deontological rights, but animals, by virtue of their autonomy, but to a smaller degree, should have weaker deontological rights. All right, so the other sorts of considerations, you have to go back and forth and weigh the pros and the cons of various positions. But then you've got the objection that, that you mentioned, which I haven't yet uh, addressed fully. I've been, I've been stalling for time. I've been uh, saying, look, every view's got problems. So isn't it true that on the view that I've been uh, sketching, no more than sketching, we have to say, look, if by virtue of uh, having a uh, greater aesthetic sense, you count more morally. If by virtue of having more creativity, you count more morally. If by virtue of having more moral control uh, and moral motivation, you count more morally. If by virtue of having a greater degree of autonomy, you count more morally. Um, then don't we have to say that people differ uh, in this way as well? And so aren't we led to the conclusion that some people, not only do people count more than animals, you know, people count more than dogs, but dogs count more than, than uh, fish. Um, don't we have to say that uh, some people count morally more than others? Um, and that's an implication that I think many, many, many people will find just totally uh, un uh, unacceptable. 
Um, okay, that's why I gave the little preamble. Every viewer is going to have implications that are very, very hard uh, uh, to swallow. I mean, even the Unitarian physician uh, is going to say, look, if what makes you calm is the ability to feel pleasure and pain, then don't we have to talk about certain severely cognitively impaired humans uh, that um, don't have that kind of level of consciousness. And so and they won't have the kind of standing that we think matters. Uh, and so it would be okay to use them as organ factories. Um, uh, uh, and that's, again, that most of us find a, a conclusion that's hard, hard to believe. So it's, 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 it's very difficult philosophically to avoid all versions of this uh, objection. Anyway, all right, having conceded that there is this unintuitive implication, what is that one can say in response? So there's a, there's a short answer and there's a somewhat longer answer. And I'm sympathetic to both. Um, the short answer is, yes, there are differences in moral status among people, but we have to keep in mind now that we've zoomed out to be taken to account the entire animal kingdom, and you think about the differences between people on the one hand and dogs, down to fish, down to flies, um, in terms of any kind of scale that's going to go all the way from insects up to people, um, the differences among ordinary people are going to be trivial. They're going to be negligible. For all practical purposes, we could never, ever accurately assess, um, you know, do you have a better memory than I do? Uh, uh, do you have a more developed aesthetic sense than I do? I'm pretty creative philosophically, but you're pretty creative uh, when it comes to narratives. Which of these is more important? So, you know, we could never really do that in real time. Uh, and the differences would be so trivial that from a practical point of view, we should just neglect them. Some people may find it an adequate answer. And to, to be perfectly honest, I, I think that is probably uh, something like the truth. Um, but you can get a, a, a more complicated version of this answer when you emphasize this point about from the practical point of view. Because there's a lot of differences uh, that may matter um, that an adequate moral theory in some sense shouldn't pay attention to because an adequate moral theory needs to be not super fine grained. Um, I mean, think about the kinds of moral statuses that I'm saying, look, you know, uh, apes count more than uh, dogs. Dogs are fairly, pigs are quite intelligent. Uh, dogs are pretty intelligent. Mice are actually fairly intelligent. Uh, but, but fish, you know, they actually have some intelligence, less intelligent, snakes, less intelligent, etc. But, you know, even within, um, uh, you know, dogs are going to be variations in level of intelligence. Among mice, are going to be variations in level of intelligence. Among birds, are going to be variations. Some birds are highly intelligent, other bird species less so. It would be impossible to have, you know, in a practical, workable way, a moral code which told me anytime I'm going to interact with an animal, I have to figure out its IQ. I have to figure out its intelligence, its emotional intelligence, and and all these other dimensions. We we don't have the time. We don't have the the ability to gain that kind of information in real. You know, we can stipulate in a philosophical thought experiment, but in the real world, we can't do it. So the only practical morality is going to be more coarse grained. Instead of having an infinite number of levels, you know, with continuity, you know, it can be a little bit more, count a little bit less. So psychologists have long since known that people can't really keep straight more than about seven things, um, and so. It strikes me as pretty plausible to think that from a practical point of view, we're going to have to divide the animal kingdom into some very big coarse grain uh, levels. Um, and so we're going to have we're going to have the, the very intelligent animals, uh, uh, maybe maybe the primate, you know, the upper primates, the great apes, maybe elephants, maybe whales, right, you know. And then there's going to be the, you know, the, the intelligent uh, uh, mammals. And then there's going to be the, you know, then there's going to be the, the bird brain. Uh, I, I don't actually, I'm not prepared to actually argue exactly what the groupings are going to be. But the thought's going to be, we don't have the mental capacity to have there be more than six or seven or maybe ten groupings. And what that means is we can't spare 
three, five, seven groupings to do these fine-grained distinctions among people. Um, for, from a practical point of view, the only uh, uh, workable moral theory is going to be one that basically says, yeah. except for the extraordinary cases, like maybe the, you know, the, the severely brain-deformed, et cetera, et cetera, severely cognitively impaired, anencephalics, you know, don't have upper brain development. With those exceptions, basically, you got a person, treat them like a person. Uh, because we don't, we can't make fine grain distinction within any kind of workable morality. That still leads the philosophical question: Is this just a kind of compromise? Uh, so, strictly speaking, some people do cop more, or no? These groupings really then become the 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 truth about morality that everything within these things, the fine grain distinctions, don't matter. This is, I think, another one of these in-house debates uh, about. Uh, how to understand certain rule-based approaches in moral philosophy. And again, I'll avoid getting into the weeds here. Some people will say these coarse-grained groupings are only a kind of compromise, uh, but they don't really get to the fundamental moral facts. Others will say, no, no, this is really the way you should behave. Um, but, but I think this goes some distance towards uh, at least... Uh, if not eliminating, at least reducing some of the bite of, of the quite important objection that you raised. Or what should we say about these these minor differences that, that differentiate one person from another? Uh, as, as you just mentioned, no idea is completely, let's say, sealed from criticism. And uh, what I liked about your book is that you put forth your ideas. You do acknowledge that maybe... Uh, uh, maybe some of the objection could be right. You try, you, you do address again them uh, as best as you can. And uh, one thing I liked that I do like you to talk about as well is the idea of practical realism as well, because you you, you use that framework to respond to that to those objections for hierarchical hi hierarchical approach. Yes. So practical realism is the the the, the term I created uh, for just this. Uh, thought that I've just been articulating that um, from a practical point of view, being realistic about what we can actually do in the practical domain, uh, an overly fine-grained approach is just not feasible. Um, you need a, a more coarse-grained approach. Um, and the the in-house debate is, is the practical realism uh, uh, I, I just kind of rough guide, or is it? No, no. This actually distinguishes uh, the, the the morally relevant groupings. Let, let me give an analogy. It's one that I that I, I share in the in the in the book. Um, think about speed limits. Uh, you know what what we know is that as you move uh, faster and faster, as you driving faster and faster, mm. it's harder and harder to control. There's a greater and greater risk uh, of accidents. Uh, slower and slower speeds uh, save lives. On the other hand, it takes us at low and lower speeds to, uh, uh, it, it saves lives, but it takes us all longer to get home. <laughs> so, so we pay a cost one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So we do our best from a practical point of view. We distinguish various kinds of groups. We have lower speed limits uh, on uh, residential streets. We have faster speed limits on commercial streets. We have faster speed limits still on highways. Certain stretches of some of the states where there are you know, many, many, many miles between cities. We have faster speed limits still. Now, you might say this has got to just be an illusion, right? Because what's the difference between going 58 miles an hour and 59 miles an hour? That's a very small difference in terms of risk and danger of accidents versus going 64 miles an hour and 66 miles an hour. It's again, it's just you know, a mile to a mile per hour. That's that's a trivial difference. So isn't it an illusion? But no, for practical reasons, we have to draw lines. And so having drawn the lines, it's it's just this this it's it's a fact. It's not an illusion. It's a fact. You're going 66 miles an hour in a, in a 65 miles an hour highway. You are breaking the law. You're going 64 miles an hour. You are not breaking the law. And so even though in some sense the underlying facts about danger and risk are continuous, out of practical necessity, 
we generate lines and that those lines actually do matter legally. That's the difference between speeding and not speeding from a legal point of view. And so one way of taking these notions of practical reason with a uh, practical realism within the, the moral domain seriously is to say, yeah, we're going to need these coarse grain categories, but just like there's a, it's not, it's not fiction that driving 67 miles an hour is illegal, but 64 miles an hour is legal. That's the literal truth. One way of taking the practical realism idea seriously is to say, yeah, these categories, once we rough them out, they genuinely demarcate the relevant groupings until you find yourself in an extraordinary situation. And then that's worth pausing on uh, as well. I mean, just like when you're driving, yes, the speed limit is uh, 65 miles an hour, but the law recognizes exceptions that there are necessity cases. You're in rushing to get your uh, injured uh, husband to the a hospital, you know, when the cop stops you, you say, my husband's bleeding in the back. Oh, okay, let's speed, right? That's legally permissible because you've identified an exception case. We can quibble about what the exception cases are, right? You know, if at our first pass, we end up putting birds in some second or third tier, and then when animal psychologists discover, as maybe is already the case, that ravens are really, really intelligent, or parrots are really, really intelligent, and they have self-consciousness, uh, and they have the ability to think creatively about the future or what have you, maybe we will think, oh, we, we need to revisit which particular types of animals belong you know, in what types of groupings. This is the sort of thing that over the course of my lifetime, we've learned more and more about dolphins and elephants. And you think, yeah, maybe they're kind of, maybe they're in a group, not quite as high as people, but, but, but at least the, the next group down. Or here's a kind of science fiction experiment, uh, science fiction uh, philosophy thought experiment. Um, imagine that scientists invent some super duper vitamin, cognitive improvement vitamin, and if you give it to a dog, it changes the molecular chemistry of the dog in such a way that they develop the intelligence, cognitive capacities, and emotional depth uh, that an ordinary human being has. Well, at that point, I want to say, it doesn't matter that dogs are in tier three or in tier four ordinarily. This dog, we have reason to believe, is a person, is, is self-conscious, rational, what have you. you know, when we start translating that dog's poetry, that's the sign that it's time to treat this dog as one of the exceptions. And so practical realism recognizes that we're going to have coarse-grained categories of a kind of necessity, but that doesn't mean that there won't be individual cases where we have reason to upgrade or maybe even, in some cases, downgrade somebody's location. And when all of this is said and done, it's, it's going to be an explanation, I think, about why it's legitimate to perform well, certain types of medical experiments on animals that it wouldn't be permissible to perform on people. And some of those medical experiments that will be permissible to perform perhaps on fish, but not on dogs. Um, uh, I don't have the details of this theory worked out. Um, one of the reasons the title of the book is, uh, the title's a bit of a, a deliberate pun. How to on animals more or less Part of the meaning of that title is some animals count more and some animals count less. Uh, but part of the meaning of the title is I don't have the worked out theory. I'm only gesturing in the direction more or less of what we need. And I leave it to, to others to, to work this kind of hierarchical theory out uh, in greater detail. Uh, but, but once we have that theory, it will, it should have practical implications. Um, and, uh, you know, I, just to, to just mention another point because it's so important to me, I, I said that the hierarchical view was something like the common sense view. But I say that with misgivings because um, somebody says, well, look, the common sense says it's okay to eat animals. Uh, I don't really think it's okay to eat animals. 
I think even when the proper hierarchical view is developed, it will still turn out that even though human interests count more, the minor benefit you get, the, 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 the slight extra pleasure you might get by eating a hamburger or eating a veggie burger, and even though animal suffering counts less than human suffering, the, the, the animal suffering still counts. Uh, and it counts enough to outweigh the minimal extra pleasure you're going to get. I think one of the reasons it's important to develop the hierarchical view fully and, and, and to at least see this is the way an adequate moral view is going to look uh, is because we will never, this, is, this may be cynical on my part, but uh, pessimistic, but I think we will never reach the stage in society where we start treating animals with the respect that they are owed. Um, uh, the way we treat animals is a, is a moral horror, and I look forward to the day when we recognize that and reshape our, our lives. Um, we, but, I, but I worry that we will never start treating animals with the respect that they, that they deserve, the reflection of their, their moral standing, moral status, until such time as we recognize that, yes, they count, but they don't count with the same kind of status that people have. If, 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 if our only, if the only philosophical positions on the table are, uh, um, they don't count at all, or they count the same as you and me, too many people are going to conclude, oh, I guess on reflection, they don't count at all. I think the way to make moral progress here uh, in our treatment of animals is to see the necessity and the plausibility of, of a hierarchical theory. Uh, Professor Shelley Kagan, thank you very, very much for your uh, time. I really enjoyed listening to you, and um, I'm absolutely sure that you have triggered a lot of questions. People will, will be listening to this podcast. And as I mentioned, it's really not in black and white. And you, as you, you, you rightly pointed out, there are still a lot of issues hanging, and we just kind of scratched the surface. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, um, this is such an important topic of treatment mm -hmm. of animals uh, that uh, uh, it really is. I'm, I'm pleased, delighted uh, that it's gotten so much more attention over the last 40, 50 years. Um, and uh, my last words to anybody listening to this is become a vegetarian. Whatever your theory is, you really need to become a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure chatting with you. Too.